This podcast may include adult content. Bound Off is an independent, non-profit audio magazine committed to paying authors for their work. To join us in our mission of broadcasting great stories to a worldwide audience, please consider dropping us a dollar or two at boundoff.com slash donate. Support for this episode comes from the Loft Literary Center, located in Minneapolis, Minnesota, one of the nation's leading literary nonprofits, offering a wide array of online creative writing classes for all levels and genres. Online classes are offered seasonally. Find out how to register at loft.org. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories, An Awkward Grief by Jen Knox and Family Geometry by Phyllis Rudin. An Awkward Grief, written by Jen Knox, read by Ann Rushton. Listing time, 6 minutes, 35 seconds. An Awkward Grief The wood felt grainy against the tender sides of Sonia's fingers, and she couldn't get a balanced grip. She heard a voice behind, slightly to her right and above. It told her to relax her pinky and ring finger. She stared at the circle of food, white, green, and pink, with an accent of black seed that played against the white rice on a square black plate. She imagined the voice belonged to Ethan, even though his had been lower, with more grit. Sonia looked back. She'd eaten dinner here every Thursday for the last four months, and this was the first time the server spoke to her aside from taking her order, offering to refill water or saying he'd be right back with a fork. She looked at his serious, straight face and shook her hand out to relax it. Since Ethan died, Sonia had been religious about salmon and avocado rolls because, although sushi wasn't her favorite, it had been his. It was counterintuitive but necessary to indulge his preferences, now because she wanted to understand fully why he liked what he did. Come on, woman, try it without the fork this time, he'd have said. Despite living in this small Ohio town that sat along the Maumee and was home to less than 50 restaurants, the most prominent of which was known for its chili cheese dogs, she and Ethan considered themselves foodies. He preferred clean, simple flavors with sharp spices. She craved the richness of fondue and starchy vegetables with mild seasoning. Ethan liked to say they just had different culinary points of view. Sonia held her index finger straight, balancing two sticks between her thumb and middle finger. She went to squeeze the sticky rice that held the rest of the ingredients tight, but the thing was center-heavy and went lopsided. No, too rigid like this. The server opened a fresh pack of chopsticks, split them, and rubbed them together as though he was going to start a fire. Splinters, he explained. Once the wood was smooth, he picked up the same piece Sonia struggled with. He allowed it to hover a moment, showing off, before placing it back down. You must have a better pair, she said. May I? Without even the hint of a smile, he handed them to her, saying, Magic chopsticks. 
The few times Ethan convinced Sonia to come here with him, they'd always had this server. Ethan called him the most serious server in the world and made it his goal to make the man smile. Almost a year ago, Ethan and Sonia sat in a booth on the other side of the small water fountain. As the serious server approached the table, Ethan's chopsticks slipped, causing a piece of sushi he was about to eat to flip skyward and land on his white shirt collar. It was a phenomenal sight. Sonia laughed so hard she worried she might pee. Salmon, always trying to swim upstream, Ethan said, laughing too, as the server refilled his glass. Sonia grabbed the table and squeezed her thighs together. They often laugh like this. The server merely asked if they'd like another roll. Ethan was a financial manager at a megabank, but he often spoke of wanting to teach finance. He wanted to help his students learn about budgeting. Sonia knew he would have been perfect in front of a class of business students, as uptight and smart as he had been, hamming it up. The chopsticks felt heavy. Sonia hesitated a moment, asked the server his name. Tom. I'm going to try this again, Tom. If it doesn't work, will you bring me a fork? Tom shrugged, nodded towards the roll. He wanted her to learn. As Sonia positioned the sticks around the rice, she wondered if Tom knew. It seemed the whole town knew what happened to her husband. Ethan was running when he was hit by a drunk driver. Sonia had come home to an empty house, to his car keys by the door. She figured he was out running, so she called her sister to vent about her workday. She was complaining about the phrasing of an email from her boss when the knock arrived. The local news and the megabank paired up and raised a lot of money for Ethan's memorial. Sonia received flowers and homemade brownies from people she didn't know from all over the state. Her sister stayed with her and braided her hair late nights when she would cry herself awake. Sometimes when she was alone, Sonia imagined Ethan was still with her. Only he couldn't speak, couldn't be seen. He was with her the way he was when he would go out of town, only they couldn't Skype. They were still together, just physically apart. Sonia lifted the salmon roll, dipped it in soy sauce successfully, and brought it to her lips. When she placed the roll in her tongue, realizing it was slightly too large for one bite, Tom nodded approvingly. Now you know the magic, he said, and walked off. Overconfident already, Sonia tried for the second piece. She felt a familiar imbalance, and before she got to the dipping, the roll dropped into the saucer of soy, causing a splatter of brown liquid onto the white paper mat below her plate. Hell with it, she said, and picked up the soggy roll with her fingers. When she placed it in her mouth, she saw that Tom was watching her with an unreadable expression. She imagined how she must look, cheeks filled with rice, soy darkened fingers, and messy table. She imagined Ethan watching the whole scene like a sitcom and laughing. She laughed, too, full mouth, and realized it was the first time she had genuinely laughed in four months. She was still smiling when Tom delivered her fork. The End Jen Knox teaches and writes in San Antonio, Texas. She is currently writing a novel entitled We Arrive Uninvited. Links to her work and updates are at jennox.com.
Family Geometry, written and read by Phyllis Rudin. Listening time, 6 minutes, 24 seconds. Family Geometry, by Phyllis Rudin. My old man, he has this Meshugana theory that you only get so many footsteps in life. Your allotment is fixed at birth, and every step you take, starting from your first toddle across the living room in rompers, runs down the gauge. When the needle hits zero, you plots. Game over. So you'd best conserve is the message he always drilled into us growing up. No idle, unnecessary steps. Dancing? Forget it. And running? Worse still. I'm not talking running for the bus. That's legitimate usage according to his taxonomy of steps. But the kind of running I do, which is to say high school track, well, it's clearly a no-no, a ration sucker to no higher purpose. How else to explain why he flat out refuses to come watch me at my meets, snubs every damned one when all the other parents manage to show up and cheer? Not my dear father, though. He digs in his heels, unbudgeable. I know, I know. I shouldn't mock him for beliefs that he slept over to this country on a rust bucket in a battered valise. He's no fool, my dad, I'll give him that. After all, didn't he get himself out of Europe in one piece, a feat that not a one of his aunts or uncles or cousins could accomplish? Cinders now, the lot of them, he would whisper before he'd lock himself up in his basement workroom to work on God knows what. Cinders. Maybe I could get him to give in if I were a sprinter. It only takes a puny number of steps to cover 60 meters. But my body's made for the long haul. He should know. It's built in his image. 1,500 meters is my distance, and I'm good. District champion two years running. Already a full college scholarship in my pocket. You'd think he'd be grateful. The guy's tight-fisted as all get out. But I can't lure him out of that room of his with any bait, not even to see them hand me a trophy and take my photo for Saturday's star. Occasionally, in my more generous moments, I try to burrow into his brain, do a little amateur psychoanalyzing. And what I've come up with is this. What really galls him is that in my events, I run around in circles like a gerbil on a wheel. To his way of thinking... America isn't running in circles. It's all forward thrust. It would kill him to see me pump like crazy just to retread the same ground, ending up exactly where I started, and then to get rewarded for it? I don't think he'll ever have America completely figured out. A greener he'll be till the end. My son the runner? He resents me. I'm not unaware. All he asks of me is that I come to his school, sit in the bleachers, and watch him race around the track. Sounds easy, no? but he'll never drag me to that field, not as long as I have an ounce of fight left in me. I'm sure he wishes he could trade me in for one of those all-American fathers who would cheer him on from the sidelines and then drive him home with his new chunk of hardware to place reverently on the mantel, maybe celebrate with a couple of beers, but instead he's stuck with me. The kid thinks I won't hoik myself off my workbench because I don't want to go watch him run, but he has it all cocked up. It would thrill me to see him fly past the competition and break the tape. I'd fell like any normal father. No, it's not the running. It's the track I can't stomach. That accursed oval. It's the track that keeps me barricaded in the basement. We'd finally scraped together all the money we needed for the three of us to get out, according to Esther, who wore the accountant's hat in our family. Enough for the passeur, enough for the papers, enough for the tickets, enough for the greasing of palms along the way. All we needed and not a centime more. Esther kept it stashed under the armoire. Her father, a cabinet maker, had rigged up the false bottom. 
Jules wouldn't be going with us, as much as Esther begged him, though God knows no one was ordering dining-room sweets or cradles from him now. He was too old, he said. He'd hold us back. So it would just be me and Esther and our little Benjamin. Benji was only two at the time, the little pisher, with those chubby thighs so irresistibly pinchable, and a throaty giggle that could melt the hardest heart. Ta-ta, he used to call me, not papa. It was the first real word out of his sweet bow lips, and it stuck. Ta-ta. By my reckoning, we needed more cash, more of a cushion. The bribe factor was incalculable. My Esther, so pure, she had no concept of greed, and made her innocent calculations in that column as if she were a heavy tipper. Me, I knew better, but we'd already sold all there was to sell. So one afternoon when they were out, I made a withdrawal from the armoire. Emptied it, if truth be told. See, I had a tip. If this horse came in, and I had it on the highest authority, we could quadruple our nest egg for l'Amérique. I headed to the track, my wallet bulging. Is there any sight to rival it? You pass through those gates, and the track looms up ahead of you, the infield carpeted with that luminescent grass Mother Nature only licenses to grow at that magical spot where horses, turf, and suckers come together. Maybe the course wasn't quite as well manicured as I'd seen it in earlier days, and I'd seen it plenty, but even in its diminished state, it still had the power to set my heart beating a tattoo loud enough to drown out the hoofbeats. I sat in the stands and tried to sear the memory of that oval onto my brain to last me into my cloudy future. The oval, my favorite geometrical shape. Other shapes had a call on my affections, of course. My Esther's sumptuous curves, the dimpled mounds of Benji's rosy tush, against which I'd blow raspberries to his great delight. But it shames me to admit that the fleshy, rounded treasures of my family were outranked by that pocked ring studded with shit. I took all the money and slapped it down on a sure thing. I never doubted for a minute that horse would come in. But you can guess what happened, can't you? Jules scrounged up enough money for me to go on ahead alone. Crisp bills. Where they came from, I feared to ask. All he had left to sell was his soul. The new plan was that I'd send for them from America as soon as I'd accumulated enough to pay their way. But by the time I did, it was too late. Cinders... He liked to run too, my Benji. Phyllis Rudin's fiction has appeared in Canadian and American literary magazines. Her short story, Candle Power, won this magazine's Great Canadian Literary Hunt 2010. Her debut novel will be published by Inanna Publications in 2014. She lives in Montreal. Listener-supported Bound Up is made possible by grants from the Kern Family Endowed Fund, Further support comes from the Google Grants program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories. <laughs>